If you call yourself a Christian, then you face a significant tension and challenge in your life each and every day in the midst of this world. And here's the challenge. This is the challenge. How do I live faithfully to Jesus in the midst of a world that does not follow him and often directly opposes him? How do I live faithfully to Jesus in the midst of a world that doesn't uh, honor him or follow him and often directly opposes him? The reality is, is that we live smack dab in the middle of a culture with many different gods that vie for our allegiance every day and our worship. And we're constantly bombarded with images and headlines and entertainment that loud the gods of money, sex, and power. We often serve in fields, whether that's technology or academia or art or business or medicine or law, where these gods, whether explicitly or often quite subtly, set the agenda in our fields and among our colleagues. So how then can we be faithful in the midst of a world like this? What does this require in our lives and what does it actually look like? So these are the questions that we're going to deal with tonight as we begin a new six-week series from the book of Daniel chapters 1 through 7 entitled God Above All. Tonight we're in chapter 1, the story that Jen read for us. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has just besieged Jerusalem in 605 BC and deported many from Israel to Babylon. And there in exile in a foreign land among foreign gods, some gifted youth from Israel were to be trained in the Babylonian way of life for three years, learning the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, in order then to, at the end of that three years, to stand before the king and to be of service to him as those who were wise and trained in the ways of that world. They were, be, they were to be sustained during their training program of three years with the king's food and drink, his wine. And then in verse 6 of Daniel 1, Daniel and his friends are actually introduced And in verse 7, their new Babylonian names are given to us. So that's the scene that we pick up in Daniel chapter 1. These youths in the middle of a foreign land in exile, now in the service of the high king Nebuchadnezzar. And that brings these questions right to the foreground that we want to wrestle with tonight. So how will Daniel and his friends be faithful? What will this require and what will this look like in their lives? I want to suggest to you that we see three things in their faithfulness in this text. The first is found in, uh, in, in the the first that responds to these questions, the first thing that we see is laid down in verse 8. In fact, actually, you're all three in verse 8. Verse 8 of Daniel 1 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel resolved. It's as far as I want to go at the moment. Faithfulness in the midst of a world like ours to resist the pressures of compromise in a secular culture must begin with this deep conviction of the heart. It starts at the heart level. Now in their context, Daniel and his friends had a a tremendous amount of pressure to conform to the new society in which they found themselves. First, their God had apparently been defeated. Nebuchadnezzar had come into Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, taken some of the the key people of Israel back in 605. Later, about 20 years later, he would come in and just kind of complete the job that he began. 
Now, we know in verse 2, if we read verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So as the reader, we know that God was the one behind this attack against Israel. But Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and his friends wouldn't really have known that. From their perspective, this God that they proclaimed and loved had been defeated. And so there was deep pressure to throw in the towel and just conform to the world that they had entered. Secondly, they'd been selected by the king for this special service. They had access to the places of power and luxury in this new Babylonian culture. They were invited into the king's court. And so surely this was a deep temptation to to give up their exclusive allegiance to Yahweh, the king, the the God of Israel, and to plunge headfirst into this new Babylonian way of life and go for the best. Just swallow the whole pill and see where the chips fall. So pressures were strong for Daniel and for his friends to conform to the culture around them. The pressure is, is intense because the payoff might be greater if they conform. They might end up at the top with all that this world, this new world in which they live has to offer. But it's in the middle of these pressures and in the midst of this foreign context that they remain faithful. Daniel resolved. Deep down at this heart level, there was a conviction. A conviction that could only come from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good in the midst of life. That the Lord is faithful to all of his promises. And that the assurances that this, and the treasures that this world has to offer are nothing to be compared to what our God gives and brings and to the future that he promises us in our lives. This is the conviction, this belief that God is treasured above everything else, that God is worth more than anything else, that lies at the heart of Jesus' question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his life? You can gain everything that the world has to offer. But if you lose God, you lose everything, Jesus is saying. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses saw the same thing by faith. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the reward. Paul also testifies to the same deep heart level conviction that God is worth everything. When he says in Philippians 3 that he suffered the loss of all things so that he might gain Christ. The one thing worth more than everything else in the world combined. So Paul rejects everything to gain Christ. Daniel here has a deep resolution not to defile himself in the midst of a pagan culture and a pagan world. Because at the level of his heart there's this conviction that God is worth everything. Those who have this deep heart level conviction are the ones who have given up um, the need for something else alongside of God. It's God and God alone that ultimately is sufficient in our lives. A.W. Tozer says this, he says, the evil habit, this is out of his book, The Pursuit of God, the evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the and lies our great woe. If we omit the and, we shall soon find God, and in him we shall find that that for which we have all our lives been secretly longing. This faithfulness in the midst of a pagan culture starts at the heart level that says God is enough and God is everything. Full stop. 
If there's an and in our lives, if there's an and in our hearts that says something else I need besides God himself, whatever that and may be, however good and laudable that may be in our lives, then we're seriously handicapped in our endeavor to walk faithfully with Jesus in the midst of a culture that doesn't honor him and often opposes him. So we need this deep heart level conviction that says we resolve. We resolve not to defile ourselves in the midst of this world. But this resolution needs other things. And here we come to the second part of what's needed for faithfulness in the midst of a pagan world. We need wisdom and discernment to know how to live in the world without compromising our fidelity to God. So lacking this wisdom, but having this deep resolution, the church has often gone down the path of one of two extremes. On the one hand, we remove ourselves from the world around us, creating a cultural ghetto of sorts, a Christian subculture. In our concern over unfaithfulness and defilement, perhaps a rightly motivated concern, we've stepped out of the world, consigning it to ruin and decay while preserving ourselves, the faithful remnant, for Jesus' coming return. So we develop our own schools, our own basketball leagues, our own entertainment um, you know, avenues, our own social networks. And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these realities in and of themselves. But they're often, when taken together, things that lead us out of the world that God has sent us into to love and to serve. So we run into the ghetto. We put the barriers up. On the flip side of this kind of separatist mentality is too quickly adopting the stance of our home culture. We assimilate with the culture entirely, thinking that in some way this is what we're called to do and to be, to be one with the people around us, thereby losing our distinctiveness. Or we hold on to private belief in Jesus when our public actions and lifestyles reflect very much the values of the world around us, the dominant values in our culture. And in this kind of assimilation model, we far too strongly embrace the world around us and then have nothing left that's distinctive to shine light into the world. And often in this way, the church just becomes another social institution that's set up for the common good, but has no teeth, no bite, ultimately no power. The example of Daniel and his friends shows us another way. They weren't afraid of the Babylonian culture. They found themselves in positions of privilege and influence and resource. And they received their new Babylonian names without a fight. They studied the new culture. They advanced in wisdom beyond all of their contemporaries. Their lifestyle was anything but separation from the culture in which they found themselves. They were in the heart of the systems of power. They were in the service even of the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar, the idolatrous king. As we'll go on next week to see his great dream, which has his own person at the center. They were in the heart of this culture, learning the ways of this culture, the language of this culture, the inner workings of this culture, and participating in those things in a deep and profound way. And they did all of this without defiling themselves. A strong rebuke to the separatist kind of model that we often, the church often embraces with the culture around it. But on the other hand, they didn't assimilate entirely, did they? Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. In verse 8, Daniel shows a tremendous amount of wisdom and understanding about where to draw the line in his life in this foreign land. He'll take the name, 
He'll take the training plan. He'll take the learning. He'll take the future job. But he won't take the king's food and wine. This for him is too far. Why? Why won't Daniel have the meat and the wine? The reason that he gives in verse 8 is because these things, he says, would defile him. They would bring about spiritual pollution in some form or another. And scholars have given many reasons for why Daniel didn't want the meat and the wine. The two leading most reasons are that the food had probably been offered up to idols in some kind of secular idolatrous temple. And that eating it would somehow give a stamp of approval to this kind of idolatry. Or that the meat was not killed in accordance with the Mosaic law and therefore was unclean and impure for Daniel. But each of these explanations has a kind of fatal weakness. On the one hand, Daniel accepts vegetables. And this isn't just because vegetarianism is the way that God wants us to live. The veggies would have been offered up in the temple just like the meat. So it doesn't really work for that that explanation. And on the other hand, he rejects wine and not just meat. And the wine was not obviously produced in some kind of way that was inconsistent with the Mosaic law. So why is it that Daniel rejects the food and the wine? There's a deeper reason. We obviously can't know for sure, but there seems to be a deeper reason. These things didn't just simply break a rule, but it's rather the likelihood that far more that eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine was seen by Daniel as an outward expression of a full embrace of the values and idolatries of the culture in which he found himself. As one commentator says, he says, what we eat and drink, like what we wear and how we speak, generally constitutes an outward expression of our self-identity and commitments. In other words, eating the king's food was a way of affirming the underlying commitments of the idolatrous culture in which Daniel found himself and the excesses and the extravagances of the height of what that culture had to offer. And this was too far. This is where the line needed to be drawn. This was something that he couldn't affirm and embrace. So he'll be in the culture, and he'll learn from the culture, and he'll work in the culture, but he will not take up a lifestyle or practice that shows that he deeply affirms the idolatrous values of the culture. And to know where and how and when to draw that line for Daniel and his friends and for us in the 21st century in this culture takes a tremendous amount of wisdom and discernment to go along with the heart-level conviction. One wonders what the equivalent choices are for us in the world today? What practices, if we take them up in our lives, lead us to affirm the idolatrous values of the culture around us? Racking up debt to maintain a particular lifestyle that the world says is laudable even though we can't afford it? Investing in the political process, perhaps, in such a way that it becomes the source of our hope and our joy and our despair? Complying with unspoken rules in our company in our company culture that reflect a profit-at-all-cost mentality that idolizes money? Practicing unrestrained sexual expression since this is essential to expressing ourselves and to being the me that God created me to be? Working incredibly hard, perhaps, in our 30s, 40s, and 50s to arrive at an eat, drink, and be merry retirement on the golf course? I'm just offering suggestions trying to provoke us to the deep thinking that needs to take place to provoke to bring about the wisdom in the church and we need to talk about these things in the community of God's people in our neighborhood groups in our casual conversations to know how far is too far what's the equivalent of drinking the king's wine and eating the king's meat
What is it that leads to an embrace of the, of the values of the culture around us and that leads to a pollution in my own life? So faithfulness requires a deep conviction of the heart and it requires a tremendous wisdom and discernment in the mind, but it requires something more than that as well. It requires the will to be engaged in action. Verse 8 again, therefore, having resolved this, Daniel says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He not only has the resolution in the heart or the wisdom in the mind, but he sees that this must be accompanied by action with the will, engaged in the world and taking a deep risk. So he asks the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. We have to understand that this action for Daniel was deeply risky. He was in exile in a privileged position, yes, but the pressures to conform and to simply take what the king had offered to him were massive and the costs of not doing so could have been quite lethal. Daniel quite literally takes his life into his own hands when he says, and he asks for permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself with these things. It required a tremendous courage and boldness to take this step and to put everything that he had that was his gain at that moment up on the table in order to take this step. But he takes this bold and courageous action, doesn't he, with wisdom as well. He and his buddies didn't actually get a big sharpie and write big massive posters and stage a protest in the king's court. They didn't, as far as we know, they didn't try to go start a campaign among the other Israelite youth that were among them to have them follow the same conviction, to get on board with the program. In other words, their action in this context wasn't an ostentatious display of faithfulness to God. Rather, it was a shrewd and humble action, a way of, of, of moving faithfully in a foreign land. And as we read in verse 9, God gave them favor with the chief eunuch. They didn't get their heads chopped off right away. By the grace of God, they weren't execute, executed or flunked out of the program. They did, in fact, though, meet some resistance. The chief eunuch was a little bit concerned about his own head if they started looking weak and, and frail compared to the other youth who were taking the full diet that the king had prescribed. So Daniel, ever wise, devised a plan and a test to present to the steward of the chief eunuch. Said, do this for 10 days. Let us test this out. Give us only vegetables to eat and then see if we're deficient in any way. Compare our appearance to those of the other youth who are eating the king's diet. Again, deep wisdom and shrewdness in how he's interacting for faithfulness in the midst of this culture. And by God's grace, again, the plan works. And as we read in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. This plan prevailed. So even though we see the right action in our lives, in this culture, are we willing to step into it Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a great example of someone who not only knew and had the conviction, but who stepped in with action when faced with the evil Nazi regime. And it cost him his life. Are we willing to step out, to risk the embarrassment perhaps among our peers or our coworkers, the ridicule, the discomfort that maintaining our distinctiveness for Jesus' sake might cost us in this world and in our culture? I'm not suggesting in any way that we become brash and harsh. But can we wisely and shrewdly and humbly stand for a different way in the middle of our companies and our academic departments and our neighborhoods? Sure, it, it might be costly. But isn't the cost of inaction in some ways in our lives even greater? 
So the resolution, the wisdom, the action of the four youths then lead in Daniel 1 to blessing, which is a powerful testimony to the reward of remaining faithful to God at any cost. We see in verse 17 that God honored these four youths and gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And they then stood before the king and they were ten times better in their service to the king than the best that Babylon had to offer. A great pronouncement of the rule of God over Nebuchadnezzar, which becomes a theme of the book of Daniel, as we'll see in the weeks to come. Now, of course, God didn't have to bless their efforts in this way. And the last thing that we want to conclude from this chapter in Daniel and from the other stories that we go on to read, some that are quite well known and famous, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, we don't want to conclude from these things that God will always bless his children in, in physical and material ways in the midst of this world if we are faithful to him. To proclaim that message would be to do a disservice to the people of God in a world today that's often very ambiguous and challenging. It would be to flatten a three-dimensional reality into a two-dimensional reality. And we don't want to do that as we come into these stories in the book of Daniel. That often might lead us to more of a crisis of faith than an encouragement of faith in our lives. In fact, the New Testament speaks quite powerfully to the contrary. Obedience and faithfulness, yes, always leads to God's blessing, of course. But in the present world, as it was with Jesus, it often leads to blessing through the cross. At least in a physical and material sense. Of course, there's a deep spiritual blessing in the midst of the suffering of the cross that we're called to in this present world in our faithfulness. And this then leads us Lastly, finally, to the real means by which we can grow in, mind, in heart, in mind, and in will, in resolution, in wisdom, and in action, by which we can live faithfully in the world around us. There was one man who was resolute in his faithfulness to God, who said, not my will, but yours be done, who said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. There was one man who entered fully into a foreign culture and embraced its weaknesses and its realities and yet resisted complying with or affirming the deeper values of that culture in that world. He rejected the worldly way of power and did not affirm the path of violence and of might. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I would call the angels and they would come and they would fight for me, but my kingdom is not of this world. And with wisdom, he resists the deeper affirmation of the values of his age. And though costly, he acted upon these things deeply out of love for God and out of love for the world and so was beaten and accused and slandered and finally crucified. And then God raised him up and blessed him above all and beyond all. You see, we can never grow in faithfulness and be like Daniel and his three friends in resolution and wisdom and in action until we see that the one who was really resolved, the one who was truly wise, the one who truly acted fully despite all the great cost that was upon him was Jesus himself. Jesus who did that for us, for you and for me. The path to faithfulness in a world 
of foreign gods, the path to greater resolution is not by sheer willpower in our lives, but rather through the contemplation and the adoration of the one who was truly faithful, the one to whom Daniel and his friends, even here in chapter one, ultimately point us to Jesus himself, through whom God's kingdom was ultimately established over all other worldly powers. Only if we believe in him and trust in him and see him as Lord over all things and Lord over our lives as the one over all will we be free and empowered to be like Daniel and his friends in our day-to-day lives in whatever context God has called us to in the midst of this pluralistic world. Amen.